Good morning. It's good here. Good to be here with you this morning. Um, I want to draw your attention to an interview that took place in October of 2013. Um, the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia gave an interview with Jennifer Senior for New York Magazine, and in the course of the interview, he surprised Senior by his belief in heaven and hell. And heaven and hell. Uh, Senior said, you believe in heaven and hell? And Scalia said, oh, of course I do. Don't you believe in heaven and hell? Senior said, no. Later, just as Senior was about to change the subject, move on in the interview, Scalia leaned in and in a stage whisper said, I even believe in the devil. (laughs) And she said, you do? Of course, yeah, he's a real person. That's standard Catholic doctrine. Scalia was a Catholic and an outsized personality on the court. And Senior asked, have you seen evidence of the devil lately? You know, Scalia continued, it's curious. In the Gospels, the devil is doing all sorts of things. He's making pigs run off cliffs. He's possessing people and whatnot. And that doesn't much happen anymore. So what's he doing now? Senior asked. What's he doing now, Scalia said, is getting people not to believe in him or in God. He's much more successful that way. Couldn't there be other reasons not to believe, Senior asked? Well, there certainly could be other reasons, but it certainly favors the devil's desires. I mean, come on, that's the explanation for why there's not demonic demonic possession all over the place. That always puzzled me. What happened to the devil, you know? He used to be all over the place. He used to be all over the New Testament. What happened to him? Scalia asked. Senior answered, he got wilier. Scalia confirmed, he got wilier. And then she asked, isn't it terribly frightening to believe in the devil? And Scalia answered like this, you're looking at me like I'm weird, as though I'm weird. My God, are you so out of touch with most of America? most of which believes in the devil. I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. You travel in circles that are so, so far removed from mainstream America that you are appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you and me have believed in the devil. The interview continued from there. But I think Senior's surprise with Scalia's belief in the devil comes from our tendency to not really think about him much. And if we do think about him, we usually imagine a cartoon image of him, of a a man dressed all in red leather with with horns and a a tail and a pitchfork. And it's it's this silly, fanciful image. And that ridiculous picture of the devil is not the biblical picture of the devil. It's not the devil that we meet in the Bible, and it's not the devil that Jesus believed in. The biblical devil is indeed wily. That is, he is murderously cunning. And Martin Luther wrote that he seeks to work us woe. That's the devil that we meet in the Bible. And this devil plays prominently in the scripture passage that we have for us today. But before we go there, I want to review where we've been from uh, so far in the study. This is the last sermon in Ephesians that we have. And we've seen that Ephesians can be broken up basically into two parts. There's the first three chapters where we read about the great 
truths of the gospel. We are adopted into God's family. We are redeemed. We are um, destined to be with God forever and ever. We were enslaved to sin, but now God has redeemed us. We were dead in our trespasses, but God has made us alive in Christ. We were far from God's promises, but now we are brought near by the blood of Christ. We were orphans, but now we are sons and daughters of God. And now we are seated with Christ. We are somehow seated with Christ in the heavenly places where he lives and rules the universe. And so now both Gentiles and Jews, both men and women, slave and free, young and old, all of us are united in Christ with this new identity. We have a new identity in Christ. That's the first half of Ephesians, the great truths of the gospel. In the second half, we see how those truths are played out in our lives on the ground. How do we live out of that identity? And Paul writes like this. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You must not live like you used to live, following the course of this world, for the world knows nothing about how to live. And moreover, that's not who you are anymore. You are not like that anymore. You are in Christ. When you think about who you are fundamentally at your core, it's, it's determined by your identity in Christ. So, you put off the old self with its ways, and you put on the new self, that is, Christ and his ways. So you stop lying and manipulating in order to get your own way. And instead, you speak the truth to your neighbor with your brother and your sister. You stop perverting sexuality to, to fuel your own lusts and passions. And instead, you serve your spouse in love and sacrifice as Christ loved and served us. You don't let anger colonize your life. Instead, you're patient, you're long-suffering, you're forgiving, you forgive others as Christ forgave you. So if we are indeed saved by Christ, which is what the first half of Ephesians says, then it ought to affect the way that we live in our lives in the here and now. So Christ saves us by giving us a new identity, and now we live out of that identity in the rest of our lives. Self-consciously, actively um, being dependent upon him following him. Now, this has its complications, and that's where we come to our text today. At the end of this second section of Ephesians, Paul begins to tell us what life is going to be like. Because if you are self-consciously trying to follow Jesus, you will meet opposition. We have adversaries. Um, and these adversaries are dead set against us following Jesus. And there's three. There's three that we typically talk about in the church. We talk about the flesh. And our flesh is all too ready to give in to temptation when temptation comes. And then there's the world. The world that is telling us how foolish we are to believe in God, how foolish we are to follow Jesus. And they pressure us to conform to their patterns of life. And behind both of these, the flesh and the world, there is the devil who is scheming and waging war with his spiritual forces by any means necessary. He's using force and fraud. He's using deceit and deception, violence as well, all to destroy God's people. These are the enemies that we face from here on out until we die or Christ returns. And this brings us to the main idea of our text today. Only by Taking up the armor of God, 
Can we stand against the devil? Only by taking up the armor of God can we stand against the devil. So let's go to our text. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, starting in verse 10. This is what Paul writes. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul writes this. He says, finally. In many of his letters, he, he signals that he's going to close, he's going to end when he writes finally. But that word finally also has another meaning. It can mean from now on. From now on. So he's giving us a picture of what life is going to look like from now on if you follow Jesus. And what he says to us is that we have to be strong in the Lord from now on and in the strength of his might. The Lord here is Jesus. We have to be strong with Jesus' strength. Be strong not in yourself with your own strength, but with the strength of Jesus. So put on the whole armor of God. So hear, hear the logic here. Um, we need to be strong. Um, and the Lord, we have to be strong in the Lord and put on God's armor so that we will be able to stand against the devil, against his schemes. And without God's strength, without his armor, we won't be able to stand. Um, why? Why is this? Because our adversary is no ordinary foe. We don't wage war against flesh and blood. This isn't just somebody else like us. Instead, this is a real spiritual being who is dead set against us following Jesus, and he is powerful. So our enemy is not a set of politicians in Washington. It's not a particular nation state. It's not uh, any people group out there in the world. No, it's a real spiritual being who is evil. So consider, consider what the Bible says about the devil. Um, from the very beginning, chapter 3 in Genesis, he is the one who tempts Adam and Eve to, when they were sinless, they were sinless beings, he tempts them to rebel against their creator and their God. So they fall into sin and plunge whole, the whole of creation into sin and suffering. Okay, And then you read in the book of Job about how Satan incites raiders to come and attack Job's household and destroy it. Um, Satan uses uh, the weather to knock down the house where Job's children are staying and eating and kills them all. And he, uh, is, he's also able to afflict Job with a, an excruciating skin disease. In the book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, Satan incites David, King David, to... Sin against God by taking a census of the country. Basically, I want to count up all my soldiers to see how great I am, how powerful I am. He sinned against God in that, and Scripture says that Satan led him to do that. And we read also in the, in the Gospels, he enters into Judas Iscariot, and then Judas goes and he betrays Jesus to the Roman authorities. This is what the devil is able to do. We also read in, in Acts chapter 19, this is close to home because we're in Ephesus, and this took place in Ephesus. There were these, uh, these exorcists, these Jewish exorcists, the sons of Sceva, and they thought that they would go and cast demons out in the name of Jesus without actually following Jesus themselves. They had seen Christians doing this. They'd seen Paul do this, 
and they wanted to do it as well. So they go, and they try to cast out a demon, and the demon says, he's in this man, the man says, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? And so he jumps on them, there's seven of them, and he subdues them all, overpowers them, and sends them away naked, <laughs> beaten and naked. You know you've really lost if you're running away naked and wounded. Like, you know you have lost. And, and that is what happened to them. So our, the, the, the main point of this section is that we are outmatched by our spiritual enemy. And if we try to run in like the sons of Sceva without knowing our enemy, without knowing ourselves, um, we're going we're gonna to be like them. We're going to be running away naked and wounded. But too often, we are like the sons of Sceva. We run in, uh, half-cocked into this battle, unequipped to face the enemy. Um, the Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu talked about how you should know your enemy and know yourself. And then, in a hundred battles, you will not fear. But so often, we don't know ourselves, and we don't know our enemy. Uh, we forget our identity in Christ. And so we live like somebody else, following the course of this world instead of Christ. And we, and we forget our spiritual enemy. We either ignore him and pretend like he's not there, or we, we underest, underestimate him. Um, but the spiritual, um, the spiritual stands behind physical reality. We cannot just assume that all we're facing is material things. Listen to what Paul writes about us before we came to know Jesus. This is what he said. We read in Ephesians 2, too, that we once followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's referring to Satan. He's referring to the devil who works in the world to oppose God through people. Now, there can be some danger in, in thinking too much, giving undue attention to spiritual evil and, and demons in the world. But there's also another danger in giving no attention at all. Um, I remember when I was in Korea, Kelly and I, we got married in Korea. And um, on, our, on our wedding day, our pastor gave us some advice. Um, I've actually forgotten most of it. Um, but one thing really stuck in my mind. And it was this. He said, your enemy is not your spouse. Your enemy is not your spouse. Satan is your enemy. I cannot tell you how many times in conflict um, and disagreements, I am so tempted to believe that my enemy is my spouse. <laughs> my enemy is Kelly. But then that voice from my pastor comes in and he says, nope, enemy is Satan. And he's trying to destroy me destroy our marriage. He's just trying, trying to destroy you and your family, leaving you embittered against your, your brother or your sister, against your friends or your coworkers or some political group. When we are divided as a church, when we are divided as a country, as a people, as families, he rejoices. He's pleased with that. But Paul tells us, Paul tells us earlier in the letter to give no opportunity to the devil. Give no opportunity to the devil. The actual word there isn't opportunity, but place. Give no place to the devil. Literally, don't give him a place to stand in your life. But if you're angry and you're embittered against your spouse or against your, your, your neighbor, you're giving a place to the devil to stand. But we're actually instructed in this text to 
stand against him, not to step back and say, come on in, stand here. No, we don't want to give ground. We want to hold our ground and withstand the assaults of the devil. And this is why we desperately need the armor of God. We desperately need the armor of God because because of our spiritual enemy. He is mighty and powerful. He's not like flesh and blood. He is a powerful spiritual being. Because of that, we can't rely on our own resources. We must rely on the resources of God. And so we read in verse 13. Let's go there. Verse 13. It says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So, since we are outmatched by our enemy, we must rely on the Lord and what he provides. Um, So many people see Paul... um, Drawing an analogy here, he's maybe drawing on Roman military uniform. He was in prison at the time of of the writing of this letter, and he probably had a soldier maybe chained to him or close by. And perhaps a Roman soldier was an inspiration to, to write in this way. But actually, the source isn't, Roman, isn't a Roman uniform. It's actually from the Old Testament. It's from Isaiah. And Isaiah, we read about this armor that God himself puts on. Listen to what Isaiah 11.5 says. This is about the Messiah. It says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then in 59.17, it says of God, He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. This is the armor that God puts on because he sees his people in danger, and they need salvation. They need a hero to rescue them, and so God dons his armor. And he goes to fight for his people. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful picture. Wonderfully encouraging. But what's happening here in our text is God has made his armor available to us so that we might put it on. God is taking aspects of his character and elements of his power and saying, here, take this up and put it on so that you may be able to stand. It's amazing. But there is, there is a paradox here. We do need to be strong, but we need to be strong not with our own strength, but with God's strength. And we need God's provision in order to stand, but there's an active element to it. To it. It's, not, it's not us doing all the work. It is God providing, but we still have to take up. You know, God provides the armor, but if we don't take it up, how useless it will be to us. We need to take it up. So what is the armor that God gives us to take up? Let's, let's see. There's six different elements. And the first one is the belt of truth. This is the first one that Paul mentions. The belt of truth. Now, in, in this uh, metaphor, truth can be two different things. It can have two different meanings. There is one, the 
objective content of truth, like the great truths of the gospel, that we are, that we are redeemed, that we are um, saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So that's the objective content of faith, what God, what God has done in Christ. But then there's also the, the subjective element, like um, where, where we are conformed to the truth. Like, is it a truth as in truthfulness, living sincerely and honestly? So there's the objective way of understanding it and the subjective way, where we live according to it and conform our lives to it. And the question is, what, what is he talking about here? And biblically, exegetically, we can understand that he's, he's referring to both. Because if you live by the truth, you believe in the truth of the gospel, that's going to shape your life. Your life will be conformed to it. Um, if we are indeed saved by grace, adopted, redeemed, and made alive in Christ, seated with him in glory, that's going to change the way that we live. So if you believe the truth, you should live by the truth. And a man, and you should be a man or a woman who is conformed to it, who lives a trustworthy, truthful life with their neighbors. And, and you remember what Jesus said. He said, you are the salt. You are the salt of the earth. But how absurd is unsalty salt? It's not really salt. It's a contradiction. If we have the truth, we ought to live according to the truth. So Paul calls us to stand, putting on truth like a belt. And that makes sense, because the truth kind of holds up the rest, right? It holds up the rest, like a belt. Um, and if you, if you know the truth, you're going to live by it. And, and you won't be able to be tossed around by every, every wave or every wind of new teaching or, or a new, or new craze or trend. Um, and so the truth matters, because it, it, it's, it, it puts us in place. We stand on it, and we are able to be stable and not washed away. Um, and it, we hear so often today that truth is a social construct. You always hear that phrase. I, I even heard a middle schooler throwing it around the other day, social construct. It's like, wow, you know what a social construct is. Okay. Uh, that's impressive. Um, it's just in the air that we breathe right now. But truth is not a social construct. Um, we have engineers in our, in our church. Um, just ask a structural engineer if truth is a social construct. You, know, you don't want people who are building your bridges and building your buildings to think that truth is a social construct. You don't want your doctor to think that either. The truth matters. You, you want to pray that those people who are doing those essential things in your life don't think that truth is a social construct. No, truth is a gift. and It's given by God and it's determined by God. The next piece of the armor is the breastplate of righteousness. And, and just like with truth, we have two ways of understanding this. It could be the righteousness of God, which is applied to us when we believe in Jesus. You know, Jesus came, he took away our sin by dying on the cross, and he rose from the grave, and he sends us his spirit. He applies his salvation to us so that we are righteous in God's sight, legally righteous before God. But in practice, we still sin. Uh, and that's the other side. So there's the objective view of us, from God's view, that we are righteous because of Christ. But then there's the more practical side. Are we living righteously in our lives? So which is Paul talking about here again? And, and once more, it is, it's not an either-or choice. If you are saved by grace, if you have the righteousness of Christ applied to your life, you're righteous before God, that should change the way you live so that you actually live rightly and justly in the world with your neighbor, with your family, with your coworkers. And when Christians don't live rightly and justly, we dishonor 
the name of Christ. And that's why oftentimes Christians get a bad name. It's because they're, they, they say they have this new identity in Christ, but then actually they're, they're living as if they're somebody else, not living rightly and justly in their life. It's the second piece of armor. The third piece is the boots of readiness. The boots of readiness of the gospel of peace. Now, the, the, the boots, the Greek doesn't say the boots of the gospel. It says, put on the boots of readiness of the gospel of peace. So the emphasis is on the readiness. And, and the origin of this passage is also the book of Isaiah. We read in Isaiah 52, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah is talking about how wonderful the news is that we have in the gospel. We have good news. We have words of peace. We have a God who has fully known us. He knows us in all our sin, all of our selfishness, and yet he still fully loves us. How beautiful is that? That is such good news. We were hostile against him, but yet he sent Christ to make peace between us and him. So the gospel brings peace between us and God and between us and our neighbor. And so we have to ask ourselves, have we put on the boots of readiness? Are we ready to share the gospel? Do we know the message of the gospel? Um, I'm just a show of hands. Uh, do you feel like you are equipped to share the gospel with somebody that you know? How do you feel? <laughs> We've got, we got some hands, but there's, there's people who don't. There's people who are not raising their hands. So if that's the case, if we, if we don't know the gospel, don't know how to share the gospel, then we've got to talk to each other and, and figure out how to do that so that we can take up this piece of armor and be ready to share. And often we find that the way to learn how to share the gospel is to actually go out and try. And when you try, and it's scary, right? Because there's the, there's the threat, there's the, the prospect of maybe being rejected, you fear that you will be rejected. And Jesus says that you will be blessed if people persecute you and revile you for righteousness' sake. If they are rejecting him, that's not your fault if they're rejecting him. But oftentimes we're tactless and we're foolish and we share the gospel in ways that are so rude. And so instead, in that case, yeah, it is on us. It's on us when we're tactless and share the gospel in a way that dishonors Christ. But you learn how to share the gospel by sharing the gospel. Because when you do it, you get to learn about people. You learn what their, their hurts are, hurts from the church or, or Christians. You learn what their hang-ups are. What's preventing people from following Christ? You can't find that out unless you talk to people. Um, and also you get to know them. And when you know them, you can see where does the gospel speak to the areas of weakness, the areas that people are longing to be known, the areas where people are longing for meaning and purpose. The gospel can speak to those things. It's very diverse. The gospel is a big thing, and it can connect to every single part of life, but we don't know where, to, where that connection is if we don't know people. We have to put on the boots of readiness. Um, we also need the shield of faith. Now, there is no other reference in the Bible to a shield of faith. But in the Psalms, we hear that the shield that we are supposed to take up is actually God himself. God is our shield. We read in the Psalms, this is Psalm 28, verse 7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. And in 3320, he is our help and our shield. So faith by itself is pretty meaningless. 
The value of faith is what you put your faith in. It's the object of faith that matters. Not just, you know, believe, have faith. I was at SeaWorld one year, and they had this show, and it was this song, this wonderful song, and it was just, the lady was just singing, believe, 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 believe. I was like, believe what? <laughs> See, it's very inspiring, but there was no content at all. It was just good feelings, believe. As long as you believe something, no. The value of faith, the value of belief is what you put your faith in, what you put your belief in. Um, but it's not just an abstract belief that there is a God or that there is someone out there named Jesus. James talks about how he, he, he talks to people, he says, you believe that God is one. Okay, great, good. The demons also believe that, and they shudder. But faith is a belief in God, a trust in him, uh, a cultivating of a love of God, of, of Christ, and an active entrusting of our lives to him, practical day-by-day day, entrusting our lives to him by taking his, him by his word and living according to it in our lives. You want to show that you trust life, uh, if you, that you trust Jesus? Take his words and walk by them in your life. That brings us to the helmet, the helmet of salvation. Now, this helmet is also mentioned in, in the book of 2 Thessalonians. In 5, 8, verse 5, 8, um, he says that he calls the helmet the helmet of the hope of salvation. So here we have the helmet of salvation. There we see the helmet of the hope of salvation. And you have to wonder, like, which one is it? Is it, is it the hope of salvation or is it the helmet of salvation? And I think we can make sense of this by reflecting on Christ's work. Um, Christ has won victory for us. When he came to earth, walked in, in, the, in what we now know is the Holy Land, he, he walked in our shoes, he lived, he died in our place, and he was risen from the grave. That is a completed work. And now he has ascended in heaven. He's living and reigning at the right hand of God in heaven. Our salvation is complete by that. That is our victory. So we are not hoping against hope that someday maybe we will have the victory. Someday maybe we will be saved. No, God has saved us in Christ. Our hope is assured because our salvation has been complete. And now we don't, we don't fight towards victory, but we are fighting from victory because Christ has already won that for us. You're not working for salvation. It has been won for you by Jesus. And that brings us to the last, the very last piece of armor, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take up the sword of the Spirit. In other words, we must equip ourselves with the Scriptures, with the Bible. And you know, sometimes people will make a distinction between um, the Word and the Spirit. They, sometimes they talk about churches in this way. They say, wow, this church over here, this, this church is strong in the Word. Or they see another church and say, wow, that church is strong in the Spirit. Maybe not so much in the world. But biblically, these two things go hand in hand. You cannot separate the Word and the Spirit. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. It's the means by which God influences people. It's the way that the Spirit works in people's lives. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
So the Word is living and active because the Spirit of God is living and active. The Bible is a book that because of the Spirit of God, it's not just, just a book that you read, it's a book that reads you. The Bible reads you. And we understand this. It makes sense because what we know about the Bible is that primarily its origin is capital S spiritual. That is, its origin is the Spirit of God. The Bible comes from the Spirit of God. Behind all the authors, all the human authors of the Bible, is the Holy Spirit directing them, teaching them to write the Word, the words of God himself. And so when we see Jesus tempted by Satan in the wilderness, it says in Luke that he was full of the Spirit, and when he was tempted, how did he defend himself? By quoting the Word of God. He was quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. He was using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And so because of this, Satan will work to prevent people being exposed to the Word. Um, in the parable of the sower that Jesus tells, uh, the sower is fl- throwing seed, the gospel, the word of the gospel, around in different kinds of um, soil. Some of it lands on the path, and he says that the birds come and gobble it up. And what he says is that this represents Satan coming and taking the word away from people's hearts. Um, I was speaking with a a Christian from northern Iraq. He's an Assyrian Christian who's, who immigrated here. And he talked about how, in his context, so that the Assyrian church is one of the most ancient Christian communities. And, and, and like many ancient communities, it, it can happen that their Christian faith can become more of a cultural thing. It's just a cultural identity. And he said that in his childhood, people would show such honor for the Bible. They would treat it sacredly. They would kiss the Bible. They would display it prominently, prominently in their homes or in, the, in their churches. But he said, they would not read it. And he said, who do you think is behind that? He said, Satan. So they, they make a good show of honoring it, but they don't actually take it up and equip themselves with it. But to take, take a more positive example, I was speaking to a cross-cultural worker, somebody who um, was leading a Bible discussion group with people from a Muslim background. And he was reading through the book of John, the Gospel of John. And he came to that passage in, in John chapter 10, where Jesus says this. Jesus said, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And the person leading the discussion, he asked the people who are with him, who do you think that Jesus is talking about here? And it was amazing. They, they started answering, he's, he's talking about us. We are the sheep that are not yet in his fold, that belong to him but aren't there yet. And so later on, these people did. They did come to put their faith in Jesus. It was the Spirit of God working by the Word of God. It's a beautiful thing. So we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the boots of readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. God makes his own power available to us so that we may be able to stand against the enemy. But one element of our warfare must pervade and infuse all the rest. And that brings us to the last section of this this chapter, the last section of our reading today. This is in verse 18. He says, pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Prayer must pervade and infuse all of our warfare, all of this struggle that we have. God's armor is inseparable from God himself. And this armor is a metaphor for our dependence upon him. And there is no greater way to show your dependence upon God than to pray. There is no greater way to show that you need God in your life. By prayer, you're saying this, essentially. I am not enough. I am not enough. And what our society wants to tell you is, Yes, you are enough. Just look inside yourself. You're enough. God says, no, actually, you're not enough. Your salvation doesn't come from within you. It comes from me. So in prayer, we say, I am not enough. Alone, I will fail. Only by God's provision will I prevail. That's what we're saying in our prayer. And so we pray at all times, with all kinds of prayers, and with all perseverance, and, with, and for all the saints. All, 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 all. Four times he's trying to tell you how you ought to pray, how much you ought to pray, what kinds of prayers you ought to pray. Pray that you will know and live by the truth. Pray that you will have the righteousness of God, not only in his sight, but in your day-to-day life with your neighbor. Pray that you will be ready to share the gospel when God brings you opportunity. And pray for opportunity. And pray also that you will have a a, a faith that's growing, a, a love of Jesus that is growing. Pray that you will have that hope of salvation locked in your vision, that you know that you're not fighting someday to win, but Christ has already won, and you're moving towards that. You're fighting from that. And pray that the word of God would work in your life by the Spirit to transform you more and more into the image of Christ and work through you to call other people who are far from him to him. Jesus has other sheep out there. And when they hear his voice, perhaps from your mouth, they will listen. They will come to him. So maybe, maybe you're thinking, wow, this is kind of a grim uh, thinking of, this is a grim thing, you know, warfare. Why is it so, why is it so bellicose? What's the word? Like, it, maybe you're a man of peace or a woman of peace. You're not somebody who wants to fight. And when, when you hear this language, it's like, it sounds a little bit violent to me. I don't want to be a part of that. But the thing is, when it comes to decisions to go to war, it's not just up to you. The enemy also gets a vote when it comes to war. And our enemy, the devil, he votes for war every time. There's a, in the history of World War I and World War II, um, between the wars, um, after the devastation of World War I, it was a terrible war, millions and millions of people have died. Um, in France, there was a pacifist movement that grew up. Um, and so they started to, they wanted to keep war from being valorized in, in their society. And so what they did was um, the, the teachers' unions started pressuring publishers to change textbooks. And so French soldiers stopped being portrayed as courageous or self-sacrificing. Um, they were no longer the defenders, uh, heroic defenders of their country against you know, the German uh, invader. 
Instead, they were portrayed as uh, victims in a meaningless war. And so wounded veterans would be brought into classrooms, and they would share testimonies of what they experienced in the war. And, and they would bring the children to tears with these stories of how horrible war was. And the war was horrible. But the, the lesson they were trying to inculcate in the students was that there's nothing worse than war. And so, you know, 21 years later, after the end of World War I, when World War II starts, the French army collapsed within six weeks of fighting. Six weeks. They just lost the will to fight. So the alternative to war is not no war. It is surrender and subjugation. The enemy also gets a vote. And so what happened to France was their people and their resources were absorbed into the Nazi war machine and put to use. And then all of the, the Jewish population in France, they were exposed to the systematic removal and then ex execution and murder in the Holocaust. The war came to them, whether they chose it or not. The enemy also gets a vote. In church, our enemy is mighty. Our enemy is malicious, crafty, and cunning. And he would he would, if you let him, destroy you, destroy your family, destroy your children's lives, your church, divide you, and embitter you against one another. And the ignorance of him will not help us. Instead, it will help him. But here is the wonderful truth, that though our enemy is mighty, he is still finite. He is finite like us. He is a created being. He's powerful. He's a big, bad dude. But we have a God. We have a God who is almighty and infinite. And he makes his resources available to us that we may stand against our mutual enemy, the devil. The question is, will we take up his armor? Will we follow him? Will we actively, um, self-consciously be in dependence upon him? Will you stand and be who Christ has called you to be? He says to you, be strong in me, your Lord, and stand. I want to close by bringing to you, uh, reminding you of Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. There's a great verse. It says this. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. That is such good news. He has won. Now we need to stand with him, take up his armor, and resist the evil that would destroy us. But victory is assured because Christ has won it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... We thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the, the new life you've given us, the, the new identity you've given us. Lord, we ask that you would give us your spirit, that we would be people who hear your word, take it up, and live by it. Let us take up the armor you've given us. Let us become more and more like you in our family life, in our work life, in our schools. Um, Lord, we want to know you more and more, and become like you more and more. Lord, we ask that you would make us strong with your strength, 
so that we may stand against evil. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.